what critical and deadly mystery surrounds the golden pomegranates. Sax Romer, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales podcast is listener-supported. Making a monthly donation really helps us to create a support flow we can count on. If you can step up with $5 a month, that really helps us out. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter. You'll get a monthly thank you code for any digital download. It's a great deal and a great feeling. Thank you very much. You can also purchase t-shirts and stuff at our merchandise store. And check out the hybrid audiobook, the audiobook that's embedded in a printed book that I've invented and patented. Links can be found in the episode's details. And for those of you with the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Just enough to wet your whistle. In the app, tap on the box with the bow on the left where you play the episode. That's the special features area. Today we continue our series of The Hand of Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. You can pick up the first two titles at our website for under $8 each. Perfect for using those codes. As with last week, and during the run of this series, as you run into objectionable stuff, please talk about it with your friends. Point out the problems with your kids. Racism and misogyny thrive in darkness. Let's see where we are and clean this out of our culture through honest and informed discussion. For those of you who like supernatural mysteries, continue listening after the end of the episode to hear a special sneak peek of a book I have recorded that just recently hit the virtual shelves at Audible. It's called The Keeper by T.F. Allen. It's a page-turning thriller with a twist of the supernatural. Now available at audible.com. Just search for The Keeper. Once again, that's T-H-E, the, K-E-E-P-E-R, Keeper. I hope you like it. And now, The Hand of Fu Manchu, Part 3 of 7, by Sax Romer. Chapter 10, The Tulan Nua Chest. This box, said Mr. Meyerstein, bending attentively over the carven brass coffer upon the table, is certainly of considerable value and possibly almost unique. Nayland Smith glanced across at me with a slight smile. Mr. Meyerstein ran one fat finger tenderly across the heavily embossed figures, which, like barnacles, encrusted the sides and lid of the weird curio which we had summoned him to apprise. "'What do you think, Lewison?' he added, glancing over his shoulder at the clerk who accompanied him. Lewison, whose flaxen hair and light blue eyes almost served to mask his Semitic origin, shrugged his shoulders in a fashion incongruous in one of his complexion, though characteristic of one in his name. "'It is as you say, Mr. Meyerstein, an example of early Tulan Nua work,' he said." It may be sixteenth century or even earlier. The current treasure box in the Hague collection 
has some points of similarity, but the workmanship of this specimen is infinitely finer. In a word, gentlemen, snapped Nayland Smith, rising from the armchair in which he had been sitting and beginning restlessly to pace the room, in a word, you would be prepared to make me a substantial offer for this box? Mr. Meyerstein, his shrewd eyes twinkling behind the pebbles of his pince-nez, straightened himself slowly, turned in the ponderous manner of a fat man, and readjusted the pince-nez upon his nose. He cleared his throat. I have not seen the interior of the box, Mr. Smith, he said. Smith paused in his perambulation of the carpet, and stared hard at the celebrated art dealer. Unfortunately, he replied, the key is missing. Ah, cried the assistant, Lewison, excitedly. You are mistaken, sir. Coffers of this description and workmanship are nearly always complicated conjuring tricks. They rarely open by any such rational means as lock and key. For instance, the current treasure chest to which I referred opens by an intricate process involving the pressing of certain knobs in the design and the turning of others. It was ultimately opened, said Mr. Meyerstein, with a faint note of professional envy in his voice, by one of Christie's experts. Does my memory mislead me, I interrupted, or was it not regarding the possession of the chest to which you refer— that the celebrated case of Haig versus Jacobs arose. "'You are quite right, Dr. Petrie,' said Meyerstein, turning to me. "'The original owner, a member of the Young Husband expedition, had been unable to open the chest. When opened at Christie's, it proved to contain jewels and other valuables. It was a curious case, wasn't it, Lewison?' Turning to his clerk. "'Very,' agreed the other absently. Then— "'Have you endeavoured to open this box, Mr. Smith?' "'Nayland Smith shook his head grimly. "'From its weight,' said Meyerstein, "'I am inclined to think that the contents might prove of interest. "'With your permission I will endeavour to open it.' "'Nayland Smith, tugging reflectively at the lobe of his left ear, "'stood looking at the expert. "'Then, "'I don't care to attempt it at present,' he said. Meyerstein and his clerk looked at the speaker in surprise. "'But you would be mad,' cried the former, "'if you accepted an offer for the box whilst ignorant of the nature of its contents.' "'But I have invited no offer,' said Smith. "'I do not propose to sell.' Meyerstein adjusted his pince-nez again. "'I am a businessman,' he said, "'and I will make a business proposal.' A hundred guineas for the box, cash down, and our commission to be ten per cent on the proceeds of the contents. You must remember, raising a fat forefinger to check Smith, who was about to interrupt him, that it may be necessary to force the box in order to open it, thereby decreasing its market value and making it a bad bargain at a hundred guineas. Nayland Smith met my gaze across the room. Again, a slight smile crossed the lean, tanned face. "'I can only reply, Mr. Meyerstein,' he said, "'in this way. "'If I desire to place the box on the market, "'you shall have first refusal, "'and the same applies to the contents, if any. "'For the moment, if you will send me a note of your fee, 
I shall be obliged. He raised his hand with a conclusive gesture. I am not prepared to discuss the question of sale any further at the present, Mr. Meyerstein. At that, the dealer bowed, took up his hat from the table, and prepared to depart. Lewison opened the door and stood aside. Good morning, gentlemen, said Meyerstein. As Lewison was about to follow him, Since you do not intend to open the box, he said, turning, his hand upon the doorknob, have you any idea of its contents? None, replied Smith. But with my present inadequate knowledge of its history, I do not care to open it. Lewison smiled sceptically. Probably you know best, he said, bowed to us both, and retired. When the door was closed, You see, Patrim, said Smith, beginning to stuff tobacco into his briar, if we are ever short of funds, here's something, pointing to the Toulon-Nur box upon the table, which would retrieve our fallen fortunes. He uttered one of his rare boyish laughs, and began to pace the carpet again, his gaze always set upon our strange treasure. What did it contain? The manner in which it had come into our possession suggested that it might contain something of the utmost value to the yellow group for we knew the house of John Kai to be, if not the headquarters, certainly a meeting-place of the mysterious organization of the Si Fan. We knew that Dr. Fu Manchu used the place, Dr. Fu Manchu, the uncanny being whose existence seemingly proved him immune from natural laws, a deathless incarnation of evil. My gaze set upon the box. I wondered anew what strange, dark secrets it held. I wondered how many murders and crimes greater than murder blackened its history. Smith, I said suddenly, now that the mystery of the absence of a keyhole is explained, I am sorely tempted to essay the task of opening the coffer. I think it might help us to a solution of the whole mystery. And I think otherwise, interrupted my friend grimly. In a word, Petrie, I look upon this box as a sort of hostage by means of which— who knows? We might one day buy our lives from the enemy. I have a sort of fancy, call it superstition if you will, that nothing, not even our miraculous good luck, could save us if once we ravished its secret. I stared at him amazedly. This was a new phase in his character. I am conscious of something almost like a spiritual unrest, he continued. Formerly you were endowed with a capacity for divining the presence of Fu Manchu or his agents. Some such second sight would appear to have visited me now, and it directs me forcibly to avoid opening the box. His steps as he paced the floor grew more and more rapid. He relighted his pipe, which had gone out as usual, and tossed the match-end into the hearth. Tomorrow, he said, I shall lodge the coffer in a place of greater security. Come along, Petrie. Weymouth is expecting us in Scotland Yard. Chapter 11 In the Fog But, Smith, I began, as my friend hurried me along the corridor, you're not going to leave the box unguarded. Nayland Smith tugged at my arm, and glancing at him, I saw him frowningly shake his head. 
Utterly mystified, I nevertheless understood that for some reason he desired me to preserve silence for the present. Accordingly, I said no more, until the lift brought us down into the lobby, and we had passed out from the new Louvre Hotel, crossed the busy thoroughfare, and entered a buffet of an establishment not far distant. My friend having ordered cocktails, "'And now perhaps you will explain to me the reason for your mysterious behaviour," said I. Smith, placing my glass before me, glanced about him to right and left, and having satisfied himself that his words could not be overheard, Petri, he whispered, I believe we are spied upon at the new Louvre. What? There are spies of the Si Fan, of Fu Manchu, amongst the hotel servants. We have good reason to believe that Dr. Fu Manchu at one time was actually in the building, and we have been compelled to draw attention to the state of the electric fittings in our apartments, which enables anyone in the corridor above to spy upon us. Then why do you stay? For a very good reason, Petri, and the same that prompts me to retain the Tulunua box in my own possession rather than to deposit it in the strong room of my bank. I begin to understand. I trust you do, Petri. It is fairly obvious. Probably the plan is a perilous one. But I hope, by laying myself open to attack, to apprehend the enemy, perhaps to make an important capture. Setting down my glass, I stared in silence at Smith. I will anticipate your remark, he said, smiling dryly. I am aware that I am not entitled to expose you to these dangers. It is my duty, and I must perform it as best I can. You, as a volunteer, are perfectly entitled to withdraw. As I continued silently to stare at him, his expression changed. The grey eyes grew less steely, and presently, clapping his hand upon my shoulder in his impulsive way, Petri, he cried, you know I had no intention of hurting your feelings, but in the circumstances it was impossible for me to say less. You have said enough, Smith, I replied shortly. I beg of you to say no more. He gripped my shoulder hard, then plunged his hand into his pocket and pulled out the blackened pipe. We see it through together, then, though God knows whither it will lead us. In the first place, I interrupted, since you have left the chest unguarded, I locked the door. What is a mere lock where Fu Manchu is concerned? Nayland Smith laughed almost gaily. Really, Petrie, he cried. Sometimes I cannot believe that you mean me to take you seriously. Inspector Weymouth has engaged the room immediately facing our door, and no one can enter or leave the suite unseen by him. Inspector Weymouth? Oh, for once he is stooped to a disguise. Spectacles and a muffler which covers his face right up to the tip of his nose. Add to this a prodigious overcoat and an asthmatic cough, and you have a picture of Mr. Jonathan Martin, the occupant of room number 239. I could not repress a smile upon hearing this description. Number 239, continued Smith, contains two beds, and Mr. Martin's friend will be joining him there this evening. Meeting my friend's questioning glance, I nodded comprehendingly. Then what part do I play? Ostensibly, we both leave town this evening, he explained. But I have a scheme whereby you will be enabled to remain behind. We shall thus have one watcher inside and two out. 
"'It seems almost absurd,' I said incredulously. "'To expect any member of the Yellow Group to attempt anything in a huge hotel like the New Louvre, "'here, in the heart of London?' Nayland Smith, having lighted his pipe, stretched his arms and stared me straight in the face. "'Has Fu Manchu never attempted outrage, murder, in the heart of London before?' he snapped. The words were sufficient. Remembering black episodes of the past, one at least of them had occurred not a thousand yards from the very spot upon which we now stood, I knew that I had spoken folly. Certain arrangements were made then, including a visit to Scotland Yard, and a plan— though it sounds anomalous, at once elaborate and simple, was put into execution in the dusk of the evening. London remained in the grip of fog, and when we passed along the corridor communicating with our apartments, faint streaks of yellow vapour showed in the light of the lamp suspended at the further end. I knew that Nayland Smith suspected the presence of some spying contrivance in our rooms, although I was unable to conjecture how this could have been managed without the connivance of the management. In pursuance of his idea, however, he extinguished the lights a moment before we actually quitted the suite. Just within the door, he helped me to remove the somewhat conspicuous check travelling coat which I wore. With this upon his arm, he opened the door and stepped out into the corridor. As the door slammed upon his exit, I heard him cry, "'Come along, Petrie. We have barely five minutes to catch our train.' Detective Carter of Scotland Yard had joined him at the threshold, and muffled up in the grey travelling coat, was now hurrying with Smith along the corridor and out of the hotel. Carter, in build and features, was not unlike me, and I did not doubt that any one who might be spying upon our movements would be deceived by this device. In the darkness of the apartment I stood listening to the retreating footsteps in the corridor. A sense of loneliness and danger assailed me. I knew that Inspector Weymouth was watching and listening from the room immediately opposite, that he held Smith's key, that I could summon him to my assistance if necessary in a matter of seconds. Yet contemplating the vigil that lay before me in silence and darkness, I cannot pretend that my frame of mind was buoyant. I could not smoke, I must make no sound. As prearranged, I cautiously removed my boots, and as cautiously— "'tiptoed across the carpet and sealed myself in an armchair. "'I determined there to await the arrival of Mr. Jonathan Martin's friend, "'which I knew could not now be long delayed. "'The clocks were striking eleven when he arrived, "'and in the perfect stillness of that upper corridor. "'I heard the bustle which heralded his approach, "'heard the rap upon the door opposite, "'followed by a muffled, "'Come in!' from Weymouth. Then, as the door was opened, I heard the sound of a wheezy cough, a strange and cracked voice, which nevertheless I recognised for Smith's, cried, "'Hello, Martin. Cough no better.' Upon that the door was closed again, and as the retreating footsteps of the servant died away, complete silence, that peculiar silence which comes with fog, descended once more upon the upper part of the new Louvre Hotel." CHAPTER Twelve: THE VISITANT That first hour of watching, waiting, and listening in the lonely quietude passed drearily, and with the passage of every quarter 
signalized by London's muffled clocks, my mood became increasingly morbid. I peopled the silent rooms, opening out of that wherein I sat, with stealthy murderous figures. My imagination painted hideous yellow faces upon the draperies, twitching yellow hands protruding from this crevice and that. A score of times I started nervously, thinking I heard the pad of bare feet upon the floor behind me, the suppressed breathing of some deathly approach. Since nothing occurred to justify these tremors, this apprehensive mood passed. I realized that I was growing cramped and stiff, that unconsciously I had been sitting with my muscles nervously tensed. The window was open a foot or so at the top, and the blind was drawn, but so accustomed were my eyes now to peering through the darkness that I could plainly discern the yellow oblong of the window, and though very vaguely some of the appointments of the room, the Chesterfield against one wall, the lampshade above my head, the table with the Tulin Noor box upon it. There was fog in the room, and it was growing damply chill, for we had extinguished the electric heater some hours before. Very few sounds penetrated from outside. Twice, or perhaps thrice, people passed along the corridor, going to their rooms. But, as I knew, the greater number of the rooms along that corridor were unoccupied. From the embankment far below me, and from the river, faint noises came at long intervals, it is true. The muffled hooting of motors, and yet fainter ringing of bells. Fog signals boomed distantly, and train whistles shrieked, remote and unreal. I determined to enter my bedroom, and risking any sound which I might make to lie down upon the bed. I rose carefully, and carried this plan into execution. I would have given much for a smoke, although my throat was parched, and almost any drink would have been nectar. But although my hopes or my fears of an intruder had left me, I determined to stick to the rules of the game as laid down. Therefore, I neither smoked nor drank but carefully extended my weary limbs upon the coverlet, and telling myself that I could guard our strange treasure as well from there as from elsewhere, slipped off into a profound sleep. Nothing approaching in acute and sustained horror to the moment when next I opened my eyes exists in all my memories of those days. In the first place, I was aroused by the shaking of the bed, it was a quivering beneath me, as though an earthquake disturbed the very foundations of the building. I sprang upright and into full consciousness of my lapse. My hands clutching the coverlet on either side of me, I sat staring, staring, staring at what peered at me over the foot of the bed. I knew that I had slept at my post. I was convinced that I was now widely awake yet I dared not admit to myself that what I saw was other than a product of my imagination. I dared not admit the physical quivering of the bed, for I could not, with sanity, believe its cause to be anything human. But what I saw, yet could not credit seeing, was this, a ghostly white face, which seemed to glisten, in some faint, reflected light from the sitting-room beyond, peered over the bed-rail, gibbered at me demoniacally, 
with quivering hands this nightmare horror, which had intruded where I believed human intrusion to be all but impossible, clutched the bedposts so that the frame of the structure shook and fairly rattled. My heart leapt wildly in my breast, then seemed to suspend its pulsations and to grow icily cold. My whole body became chilled horrifically. My scalp tingled. I felt that I must either cry out or become stark raving mad, for this clamorly white face, those staring eyes, that wordless gibbering in the shaking, shaking, shaking of the bed in the clutch of the nameless visitant, prevailed, refused to disperse like the evil dream I had hoped it all to be, manifested itself indubitably as something tangible, objective, Outraged reason deprived me of coherent speech. Past the clammy white face I could see the sitting-room illuminated by a faint light. I could even see the Tulunua box upon the table immediately opposite the door. The thing which shook the bed was actual, existent, to be counted with. Further and further I drew myself away from it, until I crouched close up against the head of the bed. Then... "'as the thing reeled aside and, merciful heaven, "'made as if to come around and approach me yet closer, "'I uttered a hoarse cry and hurled myself out upon the floor "'and on the side remote from that pallid horror "'which I thought was pursuing me. "'I heard a dull thud, and the thing disappeared from my view. "'Yet, and remembering the supreme terror of that visitation, "'I am not ashamed to confess it, "'I dared not move from the spot upon which I stood.' I dared not make to pass that which lay between me and the door. Smith, I cried, but my voice was little more than a hoarse whisper. Smith, Weymouth. The words became clearer and louder as I proceeded, so that at last, Weymouth, was uttered in a sort of falsetto scream. A door burst open upon the other side of the corridor. A key was inserted in the lock of the door. Into the dimly lighted arch which divided the bedroom from the sitting room sprang the figure of Nayland Smith. Petrie! Petrie! he called, and I saw him standing there looking from left to right. Then, ere I could reply, he turned, and his gaze fell upon whatever lay upon the floor at the foot of the bed. My God! he whispered, and sprang into the room. Smith! Smith! I cried. What is it? What is it? He turned in a flash. "'as Weymouth entered at his heels, saw me, and fell back a step, "'then looked again down at the floor. "'God's mercy!' he whispered. "'I thought it was you! I thought it was you!' "'Trembling violently, my mind a feverish chaos, "'I moved to the foot of the bed and looked down at what lay there. "'Turn up the light!' snapped Smith. "'Weymouth reached for the switch, and the room became illuminated suddenly. "'Prone!' upon the carpet. Hands outstretched and nails dug deeply into the pile of the fabric lay a dark-haired man, having his head twisted sideways so that the face showed a ghastly, pallid profile against the rich colourings upon which it rested. He wore no coat, but a sort of dark grey shirt and black trousers. To add to the incongruity of his attire, his feet were clad in drab-coloured shoes, rubber-soled. I stood, one hand raised to my head, 
looking down upon him and gradually regaining control of myself. Weymouth, perceiving something of my condition, silently passed his flask to me, and I gladly availed myself of this. "'How in heaven's name did he get in?' I whispered. "'How indeed,' said Weymouth, staring about him with wandering eyes. Both he and Smith had discarded their disguises, and a bewildered trio, we stood, looking down upon the man at our feet. Suddenly Smith dropped to his knees and turned him flat upon his back. Composure was nearly restored to me, and I knelt upon the other side of the white-faced creature, whose presence there seemed so utterly outside the realm of possibility, and examined him with a consuming and fearful interest, for it was palpable that, if not already dead, he was dying rapidly. He was a slightly built man, and the first discovery that I made was a curious one. What I had mistaken for dark hair was a wig. The short black moustache which he wore was also factitious. "'Look at this!' I cried. "'I am looking,' snapped Smith. He suddenly stood up, and entering the room beyond, turned on the light there. I saw him staring at the Tulunur box, and I knew what had been in his mind. But the box, undisturbed, stood upon the table as we had left it. I saw Smith tugging irritably at the lobe of his ear, and staring from the box towards the man beside whom I knelt. "'For God's sake, what does it mean?' said Inspector Weymouth, in a voice hushed with wonder. "'How did he get in? What did he come for? And what has happened to him?' "'As to what has happened to him,' I replied, "'unfortunately I cannot tell you. I only know that unless something can be done, his end is not far off.' "'Shall we lay him on the bed?' I nodded, and together we raised the slight figure and placed it upon the bed where so recently I had lain. As we did so, the man suddenly opened his eyes, which were glazed with delirium. He tore himself from our grip, sat bolt upright, and holding his hands, fingers outstretched before his face, stared at them frenziedly. "'The golden pomegranates!' he shrieked, and a slight froth appeared on his blanched lips. "'The golden pomegranates!' He laughed madly, and fell back, inert. "'He's dead,' whispered Weymouth. "'He's dead!' Hard upon his words came a cry from Smith. "'Quick, Petri! Weymouth!' Chapter 13 The Room Below I ran into the sitting-room to discover Nayland Smith craning out of the now widely opened window. The blind had been drawn up, I did not know by whom, and leaning out beside my friend, I was in time to perceive some bright object moving down the grey stone wall. Almost instantly it disappeared from sight in the yellow banks below. Smith leapt around in a whirl of excitement. "'Come on, Petrie!' he cried, seizing my arm. "'You remain here, Weymouth. Don't leave these rooms, whatever happens!' We ran out into the corridor. For my own part, I had not the vaguest idea what we were about. My mind was not yet fully recovered from the frightful shock which it had sustained, and the strange words of the dying man, the golden pomegranates, had increased my mental confusion. Smith apparently had not heard them, for he remained grimly silent. As side by side we raced down the marble stairs to the corridor immediately below our own. Although, amid the hideous turmoil to which I had awakened, I had noted nothing of the hour. Evidently the night was far advanced. 
not a soul was to be seen from end to end of the vast corridor in which we stood, until, on the right-hand side and about halfway along, a door opened, and a woman came out hurriedly, carrying a small handbag. She wore a veil, so that her features were but vaguely distinguished, but her every movement was agitated, and this agitation was perceptibly increased when, turning, she perceived the two of us bearing down upon her. Nayland Smith, who had been audibly counting the doors along the corridor as we passed them, seized the woman's arm without ceremony, and pulled her into the apartment she had been on the point of quitting, closing the door behind us as we entered. Smith, I began, for heaven's sake, what are you about? You shall see, Petrie, he snapped. He released the woman's arm, and pointing to the armchair nearby, be seated, he said sternly. Speechless with amazement, I stood, with my back to the door, watching this singular scene. Our captive, who wore a smart walking costume, and whose appearance was indicative of elegance and culture, so far had uttered no word of protest, no cry. Now, whilst Smith stood rigidly pointing to the chair, she seated herself with something very like composure, and placed the leather bag upon the floor beside her. The room in which I found myself was one of a suite almost identical with our own, but from what I had gathered in a hasty glance around, it bore no signs of recent tenancy. The window was widely opened, and upon the floor lay a strange-looking contrivance apparently made of aluminium. A large grip, open, stood beside it, and from this some portions of a black coat and other garments protruded. "'Now, madam,' said Nayland Smith, "'Will you be good enough to raise your veil?' Silently, unprotestingly, the woman obeyed him, raising her gloved hands and lifting the veil from her face. The features revealed were handsome in a hard fashion, but heavily made up. Our captive was younger than I had hitherto supposed, a blonde, her hair artificially reduced to the so-called Titian tint. But despite her youth, her eyes— with the blackened lashes, were full of a world weariness. Now she smiled cynically. Are you satisfied? she said, speaking unemotionally. Or, holding up her wrists, would you like to handcuff me? Nayland Smith, glancing from the open grip and the appliance beside it to the face of the speaker, began clicking his teeth together, whereby I knew him to be perplexed. Then he stared across at me. "'You appear bemused, Petrie,' he said with a certain irritation. "'Is this what mystifies you?' Stooping, he picked up the metal contrivance, and almost savagely jerked open the top section. It was a telescopic ladder, and more ingeniously designed than anything of the kind I had seen before. There was a sort of clamp attached to the base, and two sharply pointed hooks at the top. "'For reaching windows on an upper floor,' snapped my friend, "'dropping the thing with a clatter upon the carpet. "'An American device which forms part of the equipment of the modern hotel thief.' "'He seemed to be disappointed, fiercely disappointed. "'And I found his attitude inexplicable. "'He turned to the woman, who sat regarding him with a fixed, cynical smile. "'Who are you?' he demanded. "'And what business have you with the sea fan?' "'The woman's eyes opened more widely, "'and the smile disappeared from her face. "'The sea fan,' 
she repeated slowly. I don't know what you mean, Inspector. I am not an inspector, snapped Smith, and you know it well enough. You have one chance, your last. To whom were you to deliver the box, when and where? But the blue eyes remained upraised to the grim, tanned face with a look of wonder in them, which, if assumed, marked the woman a consummate actress. Who are you? she asked in a low voice. And what are you talking about? Inactive, I stood by the door watching my friend, and his face was a fruitful study in perplexity. He seemed upon the point of an angry outburst, then, staring intently into the questioning eyes upraised to his, he checked the words he would have uttered and began to click his teeth together again. You are some servant of Dr. Fu Manchu, he said. The girl frowned with a bewilderment which I could have sworn was not assumed. Then, "'You said I had one chance a moment ago,' she replied. "'But if you referred to my answering any of your questions, it is no chance at all. "'We have gone under, and I know it. "'I am not complaining. It's all in the game. "'There's a clear enough case against us, and I am sorry.' Suddenly, unexpectedly, her eyes became filled with tears, which coursed down her cheeks, leaving little wakes of blackness from the make-up upon her lashes. Her lips trembled, and her voice shook. I'm so sorry I let him do it. He'd never done anything, not anything big like this before, and he never would have done if he would have not met me. The look of perplexity upon Smith's face was increasing with every word that the girl uttered. "'You don't seem to know me,' she continued, her emotion growing momentarily greater. "'And I don't know you. But they will know me at Bow Street. I urged him to do it. When he told me about the box today at lunch, he said that it contained half as much as the Curran treasure chest. We could sail for America and be on the straight all the rest of our lives.' and now something which had hitherto been puzzling me became suddenly evident. I had not removed the wig worn by the dead man, but I knew that he had fair hair, and when in his last moments he had opened his eyes, there had been in the contorted face something faintly familiar. Smith! I cried excitedly. It is Lewison, Meyerstein's clerk! Don't you understand? Don't you understand? Smith brought his teeth together with a snap and stared me hard in the face. I do, Petri. I have been following a false scent. I do! The girl in the chair was now sobbing convulsively. He was tempted by the possibility of the box containing treasure, I ran on, and his acquaintance with this lady, who is evidently no stranger to felonious operations, led him to make the attempt with her assistance. But I found myself confronted by a new problem. What caused his death? His death! As a wild, hysterical shriek, the words smote upon my ears. I turned to see the girl rise, tottering from her seat. She began groping in front of her, blindly, as though a darkness had descended. "'You did not say he was dead,' she whispered. "'Not dead. Not—' The words were lost in a wild peal of laughter. Clutching at her throat, she swayed, and would have fallen— had I not caught her in my arms. 
As I laid her insensible upon the settee, I met Smith's glance. I think I know that too, Petrie, he said gravely. Chapter 14 The Golden Pomegranates What was it that he cried out? demanded Nayland Smith abruptly. I was in the sitting-room, and it sounded to me like pomegranates. We were bending over Lewison, for now the wig removed, Lewison had proved unmistakably to be, despite the puffy and pallid face. He said the golden pomegranates, I replied, and laughed harshly. They were words of delirium and cannot possibly have any bearing upon the manner of his death. I disagree. He strode out into the sitting-room. Weymouth was below, supervising the removal of the unhappy prisoner, and together Smith and I stood looking down at the brass box. Suddenly, I propose to attempt to open it, said my friend. His words came as a complete surprise. For what reason? And why have you so suddenly changed your mind? For a reason which I hope will presently become evident, he said. And as to my change of mind, unless I am greatly mistaken, the wily old Chinaman from whom I wrested this treasure was infinitely more clever than I gave him credit for being. Through the open window came faintly to my ears the chiming of Big Ben. The hour was a quarter to two. London's pulse was dimmed now, and around about us that great city slept as soundly as it ever sleeps. Other sounds came vaguely through the fog, and beside Nayland Smith I sat and watched him at work upon the Tulanur box. Every knob of the intricate design he pushed, pulled, and twisted, but without result. The night wore on and just before three o'clock Inspector Weymouth knocked upon the door. I admitted him, and side by side the two of us stood watching Smith patiently pursuing his task. All conversation had ceased, when, just as the muted booming of London's clocks reached my ears again, and Weymouth pulled out his watch, there came a faint click, and I saw that Smith had raised the lid of the coffer. Weymouth and I sprang forward with one accord, and over Smith's shoulders— peered into the interior. There was a second lid of some dull black wood, apparently of great age, and fastened to it, as to form knobs or handles, was an exquisitely carved pair of golden pomegranates. "'They are to raise the wooden lid, Mr. Smith,' cried Weymouth eagerly. "'Look, there is a hollow in each to accommodate the fingers.' "'Aren't you going to open it?' I demanded excitedly. "'Aren't you going to open it?' "'Might I invite you to accompany me into the bedroom yonder for a moment?' "'He replied in a tone of studied reserve. "'You also, Weymouth?' "'Smith leading, we entered the room where the dead man lay stretched upon the bed. "'Note the appearance of his fingers,' directed Nayland Smith. "'I examined the peculiarity to which Smith had drawn my attention. "'The dead man's fingers were swollen extraordinarily.' the index finger of either hand especially being oddly discoloured, as though bruised from the nail upward. I looked again at the ghastly face, then repressing a shudder, for the sight was not one good to look upon. I turned to Smith, who was watching me expectantly with his keen, steely eyes. From his pocket he took out a knife containing a number of implements, among them a hook-like contrivance. "'Have you a button-hook, Petrie?' he asked, or anything of that nature. How will this do? said the inspector, 
as he produced a pair of handcuffs. They are not wanted, he added significantly. Better still, declared Smith. Reclosing his knife, he took the handcuffs from Weymouth, and returning to the sitting-room, opened them widely, and inserted two steel points in the hollows of the golden pomegranates. He pulled. There was a faint sound of moving mechanism, and the wooden lid lifted, revealing the interior of the coffer. It contained three long bars of lead, and nothing else. Supporting the lid with the handcuffs, "'Just pull the light over here, Petrie,' said Smith. "'I did as he directed. "'Look into these two cavities where one is expected to thrust one's fingers.' "'Weymouth and I craned forward so that our heads came into contact. "'My God!' whispered the inspector. "'We know now what killed him!' "'Visible, in either little cavity, against the edge of the steel handcuff, "'was the point of a needle.' which evidently worked in an exquisitely made socket through which the action of raising the lid caused it to protrude. Underneath the lid, midway between the two pomegranates, as I saw by slowly moving the lamp, was a little receptacle of metal communicating with the base of the hollow needles. The action of lifting the lid not only protruded the points, but also operated the hypodermic syringe. Note snapped Smith, but his voice was slightly hoarse. He removed the points of the bracelets. The box immediately reclosed with no other sound than a faint click. God forgive him, said Smith, glancing toward the other room, for he died in my stead, and Dr. Fu Manchu scores an undeserved failure. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Hand of Fu Manchu, Part 3 of 7, by Sax Romer. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Please become a member today. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. The Keeper Written by T.F. Allen Narrated by B.J. Harrison Chapter 1 If anyone ever saw me, they might call me a spirit, or an angel, or a ghost. They would try to describe me, but they'd be wrong. Even I didn't know what I was. I only knew one thing. I needed to keep Michael safe. I chased him through the museum's darkened hallway, screaming for him to drop the knife. If I lost him, there'd be nothing left. Everything would go black. I ran as fast as I could. We sprinted past a Picasso, a Kandinsky, a Matisse, a Brancusi. Michael ignored them all, 
Nothing could distract him tonight. Not until he did what he came here to do. We stopped when he reached the next painting. It showed the image of a woman some considered strikingly beautiful. Others thought she was hideous. But everyone agreed the dark crimson scars painted across her face meant she belonged in a museum. Like Leonardo's Mona Lisa, the image looked smaller than most people imagined. But it never disappointed the thousands who viewed it each day. Jolene was the reason most admirers packed into this hallway, and the reason the artist who'd created it had carried a knife into the Art Institute of Chicago. Michael stared at his most famous work, face reddened, shoulders shaking, eyes focused on the scars that marked Jolene's face. He raised the knife and nodded, like he'd given himself permission. I shouted, but Michael didn't hear me. He'd tuned me out again. I lunged to hold him back, pulled with all my strength, but I was no match for his rage. The blade slashed through the canvas so deep it dug into the gallery wall. An alarm sounded. Michael raised the knife again. One slice wasn't enough. I knew this as soon as he thought it. Even a thousand cuts wouldn't be enough. Drawing from the same energy that powered his famous brushstrokes, Michael murdered his painting. We spent the rest of the night in a Chicago jail. Typical Michael. He hadn't planned his escape from the Art Institute. It turned out he hadn't planned any of it. I'd left him alone too long, and he went off again without thinking. His crime surprised me as much as it did the police. But Michael didn't care. Getting arrested, going to jail, seeing his mugshot splashed across every television in the country, setting off a firestorm in the art world, none of that mattered to Michael. The painting was gone now, along with his anger. And somehow that made it all worth it. I sat on his bunk while he paced along the bars in a traffic cone orange jumpsuit, awaiting his turn with the judge. Thoughts stormed through his mind. I couldn't avoid hearing them. All he worried about was how long it would take before he could return to his studio in San Francisco. Only when he placed his hands on his paint tubes, his marble palette, his saw, his brushes, and his easel, would he feel comfortable again. He hadn't slept all night, and it showed. His dark, curly hair stuck out at weird angles, and bags had formed under his eyes, making him look much older than twenty-nine. He'd been running on adrenaline too long, and I knew he'd crash in front of the judge if he didn't rest soon. I rushed to his side and touched the back of his neck. A tingling sensation pulsed from my fingers and raced down his spine, letting him know I was there. He walked to the bed, lay where I'd been sitting, and fought to quiet his mind. I knelt beside him and stroked his hair, the same way I had when he was a young boy, scared awake by a nightmare. Thank you, he said, letting me comfort him, and soon he fell into a brief but much-needed sleep. Michael was far from perfect, but I loved him anyway. He saw the world with different eyes than anyone else, 
colors were brighter and deeper, and people were darker and colder. Even though he couldn't see me, Michael was the only one who knew I was here. He was the only one who heard my voice. The only person who'd never said a word to me. I never had anything of my own. Not even a name. Nobody ever told me who or what I was. But with Michael, I found an identity and a purpose. He could act moody and antisocial, and sometimes he'd completely tune me out. But I could never abandon him. That was the last thing I'd ever do. Leaving Michael to fend for himself seemed more impossible than making myself visible to a Cook County judge. The arraignment supplied no fireworks for the reporters who'd snuck into the courtroom, except for a brief debate over whether an artist could be charged for destroying his own painting. Michael couldn't avoid some kind of punishment, but by creating that gray area, his lawyers, hired overnight by Michael's richest collector, promised they could negotiate the charge down to a Class C misdemeanor. He would pay a fine and maybe serve probation, but wouldn't spend any time in prison. This definitely wasn't a deal the district attorney would offer a typical vandal, but most vandals didn't attract a following like Michael Delacroix. Having been deemed a threat only to his own artwork, Michael made bail and walked free. He grabbed his possessions and headed to the nearest taxi stand. I walked with him, of course. The last stubborn leaves of fall clung to their branches as brisk winds swept through the courtyard. All he wanted to do was leave this place, to get as far away as possible from the memory of Jolene. When he reached the street corner, a blonde woman holding a digital recorder called out to him. Mr. Delacroix, just a few questions. The nearest taxi stand now seemed too close. He rushed down the sidewalk toward the next intersection without looking back. Why'd you ruin your best work? The clicking of her heels on the concrete punctuated her urgency. Why destroy something so amazing? He still had a buffer of fifteen feet, but she closed in fast. He waved his arms at a taxi heading his way and grabbed the door handle before the car could stop. O'Hare, and hurry. He slammed the door behind him. The opposite passenger door opened, and a cold November gust blew into the cab. The woman with the recorder followed the wind inside and sat next to us. I'll pay the fare to wherever you want to go, and you don't even have to answer my questions. Just let me ride with you. Please get out, Michael said. I'm not the only one looking for you. She glanced toward the courthouse. It's about to get crowded if we don't get moving. A tall man in an Italian suit ran down the sidewalk toward them. He waved his microphone at another man carrying a television camera, motioning for him to hurry. Three other reporters trailed behind, each adjusting their ties and coughing into their fists. Are we doing this or not? She said. The driver looked back at Michael, then drummed his fingers on the seat back. I watched the battle in Michael's head. He needed to get out of Chicago as quickly as possible. But he hated the idea of a half-hour cab ride with a pesky reporter who probably wouldn't shut up. He wondered if he could talk her out of this taxi and fight off the others at the same time. But then he caught a view of her midnight blue irises glinting in the light coming through the back window. They were the color of his favorite tube of oil paint. 
the same shade as the sky on the last day he remembered being happy. And of all things, they were enough to win this fight.